Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello and welcome to From Queer to Eternity a podcast exploring what it means to us to be queer. My name's Scott Hancock, and every episode I'll be chatting to a different guest from the LGBTQ plus community, talking about their lives, experiences, and what queerness means to them, and hopefully discovering just how much we all have in common. Due to the nature of these conversations, certain themes, phrases, or experiences discussed may be upsetting for some of our listeners, but generally we're here to celebrate queerness in all its forms and have a good time sharing our stories. This episode, I'll be chatting with Tom Price. So, hello, Tom. <laughs> I just feel like an imposter being on this podcast, Scott. You're, you're a lovely ally, let's put it that way. You're not I, here to I, talk about your queer experiences because, no, to my knowledge, you don't have any. Well, I'm, I, I, went, I went to an all-boys boarding school, actually, and I was in love with a boy for about a year which Ooh. i only talked about i only talked about publicly for the first time on a, a sexuality podcast about six months ago so there you are there's your headline which no one gives a shit about <laughs> how did that come about i was at a boarding school and um i really mustn't reveal any names but there was just a guy i just felt head over heels in love with and it's the only time it's ever happened mm. and i was utterly obsessed with him for maybe not a year, maybe six months. And, you know, this is when I was like, God, 14, I reckon. So surging with hormones. Mm. I'm I'm at boarding school. There's no girls anymore because it's an all-boys school. And uh, he was beautiful. And and he had uh, just had me. I sat next to him uh, in Spanish. He didn't have me. Um, I sat next to him in Spanish. And I I was obsessed with him. And, uh, yeah, and then it just switched off one day. And I know people listening will be like, ha, yeah, you need to think about your sexuality but it really did it switched off one day when i was about 16 17 and it hasn't really it literally has never come back on since oh interesting there you go, there you you... go but that's not what i'm here for Scott. no 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 that's no, no. You, you are here today because this is sort of a bonus episode to the series where a few foolish people have gone oh it'd be really interesting to hear scott's story so i thought i can't interview myself yeah i'll ask the lovely tom price and you for people who don't know you are sort of in charge of the great big owl company who host our lovely podcast. That's right. Yes, I would. I would hesitate to say again. In charge, there's a very um, uh, uh, communist approach. There's five idiots in charge of Great Big Al, and thank you for bringing this podcast to Great Big Al because it's done really, really well, and the feedback's been amazing. So let's all just say how wonderful you are, Scott, and how good you are at doing interviews. But really, what everyone wants to know is how good are you at being an interviewee? I am terrible, as you will very surely find out <laughs> i doubt that very much um so with that in mind i think the first question which you always you always kick off with is what does the word queer mean to you um it's an interesting one isn't it if you asked me that question probably about 20 years ago i would have sucked a lot of air between my teeth like a plumber <laughs> staring at your old pipes and gone mm, not sure about that it's interesting though how it's been reclaimed i'm a lot more comfortable with it now i think yeah, but then you know, twenty years ago, I was late teens. I, w- I was just sort of hitting university, so it was all quite new and raw in terms of the, the feelings. And and also back then, I think the community was a lot more geared towards sexuality, whereas the word queer now feels like it's an umbrella for anyone who basically isn't cis het. Mm. A lot more open in terms of gender and sexuality as well. So it's just a nice big embracing family so i quite yes. like it now i'm sort of yes yeah and i think a lot of people have changed their uh, approach to it over the years it's been a big reclamation hasn't it mm. for that word? because certainly from my point of view my mum uh, used to use it in the most derogatory terms growing up in small town south wales you know there was a um some old chaps who live near us who she who, who i thought were brothers because <laughs> that's what i was told <laughs> and uh and um, one day she told me they were queer queer as a coot that's what she used to say oh and, those coots and, always uh, the yeah. queerest of birds <laughs> 
Thank you for bursting that. That is that that the poison, the toxicity of that of that uh, uh, sentence has echoed in my brain for years. And you just you just popped it. You've just popped it in a beautiful way. But I still struggle. I mean, it's, you know, nothing to do with me. But I can't say it. Like for example, we had I interviewed Jack Guinness the other day, mm. who's written the Queer Bible, and I had to do it. It was on on my radio show, and I had to keep saying the Queer Bible, and I found it really, really difficult because I associate it. It was such a word of hate when I was growing up. I think for a certain generation, it was, it's sort of the equivalent of poof in the 60s or something mm. like that. There's just something quite mm. oddly visceral about it. You popped on the poof there, love. <laughs> Pop on the poof. Oh, audio <laughs> professional. I'm so sorry. Um, should we move on? <laughs> yes, I enjoyed you popping on the poof. Um, so, so, okay, so you were, you mentioned you were just sort of coming to terms with stuff when you were a teenager. Mm. When did, when did that begin? When did you start to think that, that you were, oh God, can I say you were different? Is that okay to say you were different? different. Or is that, is that othering you awfully? It probably is, isn't I, it? I mean, it probably is. I don't feel that way. I don't know. I always felt a little bit other anyway as a kid because, I grew up in Birmingham, where all the strange people go. Um, I grew up in Bourneville, actually, which is basically one big old people's home in South Birmingham, where yeah. they make chocolate, but people basically mm. go to retire. So mm. I wasn't really surrounded by a lot of other children. I was really lucky in some ways because I was a smart kid. Mm-hmm. So I did well at school and, and schools wanted me. I, I went to a couple of independent schools, both primary and secondary, but we couldn't afford to go there, if that makes sense. Yeah. I sort of had assisted places something i have to be grateful to thatcher for um mm. to, she did some great things scott she did some great things i know it's annoying but uh, <laughs> yeah but it, it was that thing of I, I felt different growing up anyway because i was surrounded by people who were very well off my dad walked out on us when i was 11 as well so really it was uh you know my mom and me and my three siblings so, it oh, so felt- he walked out he walked out on four kids yeah, literally, um, summer holidays, 1996, just got up and walked out. And that, apart from a couple of instances of sort of seeing him on weekends, never saw him again. Um, oh, Scott. So there was a lot of stuff going on that made me feel a bit out of place and different from other kids. Mm. And then probably about 13, 14 is when I, I really started thinking, oh, God, I might like guys. In, in a serious way. I mean, I'd, I'd had crushes when I was younger mm. on... I remember being a, a bit like you, obsessed with one of my teachers at primary school. Yeah. Uh, not in a sexual way, but just adoring. And, uh, oh, God, this is going to sound so weird. J- did you ever watch Stingray? <laughs> there was no, something about Troy Tempest. <laughs> and weirdly, Leonardo from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There was just something about oh these characters. Oh my that... god, I love it! Sexual awakening when <laughs> when a child through cartoons and and the things you see that those oh, first He-Man, moments. obviously master of the universe. You sort of go, yeah. blimey! It's a it's a powerful sense of the the um, someone has pushed the syringe and, and you know you're you're in the drip and someone's put some put so, someone's put something in the drip. And I remember it for me. It was Jennifer Capriati, the tennis player, when I was about. God, ten or something, and it was just this feeling of who who is this this ape, this gorilla, this much stronger, bigger personality inside me who's mm. got these urges, and yet mine were all acceptable and accepted in small town <laughs> South Wales. To to feel like that, to say I fancy a girl was fine. So I can't even begin to put my brain into what it must have been like for you in that situation. No, I mean, are you, I I I do remember around that time trying to show interest in the girls' school next door. Because a bit like you, I went to an all-boys school, but there was, you know, the equivalent right on our doorstep. And at lunchtimes, people would intermingle. And I got on very well with, with people, but I, I do remember that. I think there was a girl called Alice who I, I desperately tried to do the, oh, aren't they smashing? I'd, I'd love to, <laughs> uh, to, to do the kissing with you. Oh, and I was just terrible at it. I think because my heart wasn't in it and I wouldn't have known where to to start with it really so how many girls did you get off with to really boil this down to you know i never i never have i mean i've i've kissed women um Mm. or rather a a university i've i think i had a lesbian friend of mine pounce on me right but i've never actually romantically no i haven't actually so when was your when was your first kiss my first kiss um oh wow um 
It was just then, whatever that noise was. <laughs> Someone just came in and said, there you are, Scott. There's your first kiss. Um, my first kiss actually was much, much later. Again, it's, uh, you, you always forget now that this was in the days pre-internet or smartphones or anything like that. So it was when I was in sixth form mm. at school. And I was quite lucky, actually. I, I, you know, I was in Birmingham, which is quite inclusive and multicultural and, and diverse. And there were... Some guys in the year above me, upper sixth, this is the kind of school it was, who were quite, you know, just open and flamboyant. And there was a lovely bisexual guy called Dan who was a lovely sort of big bear of a guy. Not in the, mm. the sort of gay sense of the word bear, but he was just so <laughs> big hearted and lovely. And uh, as I say, he was bi and all the girls loved him, all the guys loved him. And he took me out for my first night on the gay scene in Birmingham. Oh, wow. And we went to a place called Route 2, it was called, which, uh, looking back, you sort of go, that's an interesting name for a gay club. <laughs> but actually, it was more just a, a gentle bar, but it was quite relaxed and chilled and a few, you know, a lot of, it attracted the younger crowd. And yeah. I went there with a few other schoolmates and a few How of How old were you at this point on. then? Like 16, 17? I was 17, I think. Oh my God, imagine imagine now you're sitting in that bar. I know. It, it was, and you see the 17-year-old Scott Hancock Oh God, in. I mean, I was so, such a square. I was there probably just drinking my Coke because I wasn't allowed to drink anything else. Because I've, I'm such a rule player, it's embarrassing, I think. Um, but yeah, I, 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 there was a beautiful sort of uh, slightly gothy guy there around our age as well. Yeah. And I think, actually, no, he wasn't my first kiss. I think... I think it was just that thing of a lot of us were just having fun and talking about kissing and not having been kissed. And so we just sort of kissed each other. Yes. So I don't think there was a, a specific first okay. person. So there wasn't like a romantic moment on a bench somewhere. Oh, no, 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 no. Right, sadly, okay. sadly not. <laughs> I was someone who very much pined after other people in my early days. That 90, 90s indie way. <laughs> it was. I had basically my life was played the, the soundtrack to Cruel Intentions, I think. Yeah. Just Counting Crows <laughs> and everything else yes. all the way. Oh, God, Counting Crows. What was that album? <laughs> was it Anna and it Forever and After or something like that? Oh, God. Yeah. I remember listening to that loads. Um, okay, all right. So so at this point, we're still in Birmingham. You, you go to university in Birmingham. Mm. So when do you escape the Midlands? Oh, God, I mean, we've, we've leapt right ahead here. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. We can, let's go back then. Let's go back to the Midlands because you, you're desperate not to leave the Midlands. No, it's just, it's just that thing of you, you've sort of just leapt to me being an out and proud gay guy rather than... And there's a lot more to it than that. Know. Well, I, I think I had quite a difficult coming out in a way. So, so how, old, how old were you? So you, go, so you go to this gay bar in Birmingham, mm. right? And um, By that point, I was, I was, you know, I knew who I was and was a bit more comfortable yeah i think but how far are you at that point away from actually coming out to for example your family oh i I'd, I'd, I'd done that a few years ago i came out when i was 15 oh. oh okay that's okay right is that young is that young to come out i think it was young at that point because again no one really talked about it um I was, I was really lucky at school actually as i say there were other everyone's quite accepting about it i had some brilliant brilliant teachers that's good a French teacher called Miss Tudor who really supported me and, you know, gave me her number and said, if you ever need to talk and stuff, because, you know, it's that thing as well. I, I, and a lot of gay people have this, I think, of thinking, and looking back, I have no idea why. I genuinely thought I was going to be kicked out. And uh, What, of school? No, 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 by my mum. Oh, wow. I thought I'd tell her and she'd just go, I don't want you in the house, get out. Oh, wow. So I think I sort of told friends first. I, right. I, I told a couple of friends when I was 15, and uh, then I sort of worked my way up to telling my mum. So telling your friends is like a sort of dress rehearsal. Yeah. You, you're inching closer to the big one. And, and did they all go okay when you told your friends? Most of them were cool about it. I mean, it's a thing. It didn't really impact on them one way or another. Yeah, but still, you've got... I mean, I remember... Uh, a guy coming out to me when we were 17 mm. and I was it was a big deal this is uh, late 90s and uh, I was really shocked I just I, I was just really shocked it had never occurred to me even as you know I knew, I knew gay people existed and I knew that that was a thing mm. but I just didn't believe there was anyone in my life who could be gay that's how closed minded 
the world I was living in and I was. So surely some people must have been shocked when you did. I think some people were. I remember telling my mate Mohit, who who really, really great guy, and he was just very... I think he thought I was joking to begin with and went, really? Really? Seriously? And then just was quite cool about it. And he sort of gave me the confidence then to be a bit more open and tell more people. Yeah, I made the mistake of thinking that I had to be camp. Interesting. Interesting. Which sent me off into a spiral of depression because... It wasn't who I was, and I was. I then became desperately unhappy with myself because I didn't like who I felt I had to pretend to be. Yes, and that yes. weird sort of catch twenty two of going, I'm finally being who I am, and then to to manifest that, I I started just. I felt I had to advertise the fact I was gay. Right, right. And then it was a weird double life of feeling like I was behaving one way at school and one way at home. But yeah, I remember when I, I decided to tell my mother. Yeah. I took the day off school. I felt so sick in my stomach about doing it. I actually couldn't go to school that day. And I worked myself up and woke myself up. And I remember telling her. And her response was, that's nice. Can you put the bins out? <laughs> and... Very, this is why you should never come out on a bin day. <laughs> no, never come out on a bin day. So I put yeah. the bins out. I took the dog for a walk. Um... I think the, this is so sad. The first living entity I ever came out to was my dog. Oh. I wasn't expecting a response, but it was just nice to talk to something oh. or someone. And uh, they know, they listen, they hear everything. They did. Got. They did. No judgment. It was lovely. Um, oh, they're very liberal dogs. Cats. Oh, bigots. Oh. Complete bigots. I mean, they were hissing me in the street. I knew the cats didn't <laughs> approve of me. Um, Tories. <laughs> um, so, so hang on, hang on, hang on. So. You I came out to my mum twice. A week later, I, I had to double check that she'd heard me. Interesting. You had to make sure she'd, she'd clocked it. And what did she say when you came out second? So the second time you came out to your mum? Oh, she went, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I heard. Do you think she wasn't, she wasn't surprised then? No, I don't think she was. It's, it's funny, though, because I look back and my family is so loving and supportive and liberal. Mm. I don't know why I ever doubted it, but... I think based on, you know, the, the limited depictions of gay people on television sort of made you think people would always be against you. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't tell my grandmother for years and years. And uh, I was terrified of telling my siblings. Yeah. Particularly my, my older brother converted to Islam when he was 18. God, I thought you were going to say he converted to Islam when you came out to him. No, no, no. So that's a reaction. But I remember someone at school who was Muslim basically going, you know, you are, ab- you are wrong, you know, you will, you will go to hell, all of that. So because of their reaction, I then became terrified of my brother, who mm. they'd sort of led me to believe uh, he would think the same way. And, and that absolutely wasn't the case because I'm his brother. But does he have, does he not, so there's no conflict with him? between what you've told him and what his religion's telling him. There is, there is plenty of room for uh, tolerance and love in his religion as well, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And it, it's something my, my brother and I haven't had a direct conversation about, but my mother has related to me in that he's had, she's had those conversations with him. And what does he turned around to her and gone, well, no, Scott's my brother. That's, you know, he needs to be happy and, you know... I will always love and support him. So mm. it, it's, that, it's very easy to pigeonhole religions as being quite fire and fury. Um, yes. But for yeah. the most part, that isn't the case at all. Everyone is just about the love. And that's, mm. that was mm. nice. Um, I tell you what's really interesting is this idea that uh, people think, well, coming out in the 90s, it's not the 1950s, for God's sake. And you mentioned, you know, how seeing how people coming out has been depicted mm. in fiction, on TV and books and things like that. And what is interesting, uh, if you compare now to then, is that then the gay thing coming out, anything like that was used as an interruption to the straight world it was antagonism to the straight world and whether or not that was done from a point of love to portray gay people as being just like us and doing positive things it was still always uh, a hand grenade going off mm. in, a, in a straight world whereas now things like it's a sin which obviously you've talked about on the podcast before that is just pure celebration of the richness and depth of, of the, the gay world whereas uh back then you 
still feel like you're coming up against something. You are you are still even though you know there's tolerance and love out there, you're still you're still having to raise your head above the trenches. Yeah, I mean I I don't know how much of it is a product of growing up during that time or just being a young person discovering themselves and and being a bit afraid of themselves if I'm honest. Mm. And uh, you know, it, it's that thing of I remember going into WH Smith and uh staring at copies of Attitude or Gay Times on the top shelf and you know desperately wanting to pick one up because I just wanted to learn more mm. because I, I, I still wasn't really clear on what being gay meant but you you oh it, it felt like taking your life into your own hands picking up a copy and taking it to the counter especially because in that sort of world the woman who or the man who works in Smiths they're gonna tell oh everybody. I thought they were gonna scream across the shot you know we've got a whoopsie <laughs> you know every, I thought everyone was gonna turn around I mean we it's like in Ghostbusters we got one <laughs> Absolutely. And it's such a, a sort of ridiculous, irrational fear. But everything felt so risky. I mean, yeah. as I say, we just, we, about that time, we only just had dial up. But I wouldn't dare search for, you know, porn or anything because you'd be, I mean, occasionally your, your browser would redirect you to something and you just go, oh my God, take it off the screen. I'm, you know, you'd be <laughs> terrified that someone would make yeah. the link. Yeah. I think the closest I came to, you know, searching for porn was looking at, you know, thumbnails of the Adam Rickett calendar online. Uh, <laughs> that is a difficult wank. Back in the day. Oh, God. I mean, I'm not the only person. I know, having had conversations, I'm not the only person to have experienced this, but my sexual awakening was pretty much to the Argos catalogue and the gym <laughs> section because it's the only place you could get access to photos of, you know, reasonably buff, topless men. Yeah. We didn't realise that the... the um, that is awful. I know, shouldn't say that, but... Free, no, uh, no, no, you must. You absolutely must. It's important. The world needs to know that Scott Hancock <laughs> likes to pleasure himself to the Argos catalogue. Um, let's not even put it in past tense. Let's make it present tense. Uh, we, we had... Only the crockery section, Tom. <laughs> Fair enough. Ooh, look at that China. Um, Bit of Wedgwood. We... Um, well, I've, got, I've got Wedgwood. Um, we had, you know, we were on the brink of the... Uh, and this is a phrase that will take us back, the information superhighway. Um, oh, wow. And Yeah, there you go. At the www dots. And it was all about to explode. And we had no idea what was about to happen and how much, how easily we could access stuff and information and facts mm. and all these things. Um, so, so I don't know what my question is, really. Do you think that that has therefore made it so much is this a podcast where you're just going to say, God, it so, must be so easy to come out these days? Because it's still hard. But, and yet, with all that access to um not only information other like communities other people like you you just you're completely isolated at this point i mean i yeah i don't know if it is easier to come out because i think there's still a sense growing up that i don't know a a queer life is somehow an unconventional life Mm. and it's interesting i was having a conversation with someone the other day a, a, a lovely straight mate of mine who was going you know perfectly positively going you know i've if people have specific pronouns or want me to address them in a certain way, I absolutely will. But I just don't see the importance of labels, you know, why we need to address That's, that. And I was sort Because of, labels have been made for you. That's why you don't mind labels, because they fit you. It's that thing of, of, you know, we live in a world where people are going, oh, we shouldn't have labels. But I'm sort of trying to say, you know, when you're in a world where you have had to question yourself and, you know, really examine yourself and... You know, there are a lot of gay people who don't want to be gay growing up because it will make their life a lot harder. And that's certainly how I felt. So actually, by the time you come out the other side and go, do you know what? Yeah, I've accepted this is who I am. And other people who don't want to accept it are going to have to accept it as well. Those those labels are important. Even if they sort of put you in a narrow bracket, you sort of go, no, I need to to claim this because this is important to me. Anything that helps you eradicate the tiny increments of shame that must mm. build up at that moment. And, and, you know, for every single opportunity to reach out and find out, find someone else out there like you, you, you have slightly less shame. You don't feel so alone. So did you, did you, did you feel shame when you were coming out? Or did you feel like... Oh, God, it, it, coming out always felt like an apology. God. And, and sometimes it still does, you know, depending on who you're with. It, it can be 
in a work environment where it can just be in a taxi with a driver who makes the wrong assumption or, or something like that. Have you had those experiences? Oh, well, always. You know, even, even something as simple as going to the doctor and, you know, uh, you, you, they just make an assumption and talk about your girlfriend or something like that. And you just sort of go, mm. actually, and it just feels so awkward. And sometimes you go, should I correct this? Is it worth it? Is it relevant? And yeah, it's, it's not, I, I can't imagine there's a straight equivalent. <sighs> Is there a straight equivalent? No, no, because the world has been built for us. And we just sort of, you know, it, it, it's this, I, all I was imagining when you described that thing of the doctor is, is the, the all-encompassing way. It's, it's the, I guess they, they're called microaggressions is the wrong word in the case of the doctor. That's not a doctor being aggressive, that's just thoughtlessness. Hmm. But just the assumptions, the assumptions that cover every single element of life are that you are heterosexual. We are still in that place now in 2021. That is the default assumption. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I do it with people as well. Even lovely Lou Caulfield, who we had on the podcast a few weeks back, when I first knew mm. her, I just assumed she was straight, even though obviously she is the most flamboyant, out and yeah. proud, you know, queer person you could meet. You just sort of go... She's with a guy for oh, years. Well, but, you know, you, you sort of go, oh, I don't want to make assumptions. And mm. that, that's coming from me, where I'm sort of... I don't know. It's interesting. But it's the tiny changes in language now. I'll, I'll always say, how's your other half? Who, do you have another half? Like, it's just, mm. it's, it's so easy to do. And it avoids anyone having to, oh, you know, because as soon as you're having to correct someone, actually, well, no. You, the, even if it's the nicest, say, in this case, doctor in the world, it still makes you feel awkward. I, you know, I don't... It makes you feel defensive. It makes you feel like you have to justify... <laughs> Your life not a choices. Correct a stranger. Yeah, it's exactly. I don't say life choices even. It's not a choice, but you know, it, no. it makes you feel. As I say, it's apologetic. You sort of don't want to make it so equally. I know some people who aren't apologetic and are very sort of forthright. And again, that's awkward. I'm, yeah. I'm just not very awkward. I mean, I'm ex- an extremely <laughs> awkward person, Tommy. You know that. But I don't <laughs> like additional awkwardness if I can help it. Yeah, yeah. So you've come out to your mum twice, right? Yes. You come out to her a third time, or did you, did you leave third it at time? Two? Lucky, maybe I should. <laughs> Could be a good next episode of the podcast. <laughs> I'll give you an update next series. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hello, you. My name's Tom Price. Hello, I'm Dave Cribb. You should come and join us every day. We do a podcast called Cabin Fever, where we talk to loads of comedians who've had to cancel everything else in their lives, so they come on our podcast instead, don't they, Dave? Yeah, it's an isolation podcast. Uh, it's Dave, were you yawning at the start of that sentence then? Was it just a little yawn? Yeah, it's basically the Great Big Owl isolation podcast. We'll have people on from all our podcasts, from your Rule of Threes, your Brian Rogers, your Musicals, your Bitchins. If you like any of our podcasts, if you like any of those people, chances are they'll be logging onto the Zoom call and just chatting because, let's face it, they got nothing else to do. Also, there'll be a quiz on the bill. All right, see you soon. Lots of love. Cabin that's our Twitter. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So at what point are we at, please, if we go back to that? What what, what year are we at now? Whereabouts are we in the, the Scott Hancock life? So I've come out I've come out to mum probably fifteen, sixteen. Right. Um, okay. Come out to people at school. It's all good. Mm-hmm. Been to my first gay bar. That's exciting. Mm. Remember the the goth kid from Walsall, which oh, that Walsall seems so exotic at the time. <laughs> you know, so far away. 
You'd have to get a completely different train. Oh, the journey you were to go on in your, <laughs> your coming out adventure all the way to Walsall. I, so I, being honest, mm. I'm not... It, it sounds like awkwardness and difficulty, but it doesn't sound like any sort of tremendously painful moments so far. This all sounds like it's been okay. Am I, am I, am I heteroglossing this? No, I mean, I, if, if I am being absolutely honest, I was... There was a period of about a year and a half where I was on antidepressants and um i had quite a difficult i had quite a troubled 18 months but i think i think a lot of that was partly to do with stuff you know fallout from my dad uh, and things going on sort of still processing that actually but also as i said I, i came out completely the wrong way i told people but then behaved in a way i felt i had to rather than just being who i was that's interesting the thing you're saying about you you overcompensated and switched on this sort of camp version because you didn't know what your identity was you didn't know what the the gay identity was no that was, was that was the way? only sort of queer stuff I, I yeah that was the only sort of uh idea i had of gay people was you know stuff like gimme 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 or will and grace or john inman and and Kenneth Williams, and you're sort of going, oh, well, you know, if that's what you have to do. I, it's such a stupid thing to think, but that's because that's, that's a gay identity that's been presented by a heterosexual world, isn't mm. it? Oh, yeah. I mean, do, do you know what really changed it, I think, in my head? John Barrowman. <laughs> no, um, but I do actually have a story about John from long before I ever met him. But uh, no, what changed it in my head was um, casualty. Oh, yeah. And I think in the late 90s, maybe, or early 2000s, actually, it must have been very early 2000s, there was a character called Sam, I think, in Casualty, Mm. played by Mm. Jonathan Kerrigan, who was a gay character, but he wasn't wasn't particularly camp. I mean, they gave him bleach blonde hair, just so you made, you you know, you had to know he was the gay character. (laughs) Sort of follicle tabard. But, uh, But yeah, you know, he was very down to earth and... He just felt uh, a lot more sort of grounded, and yeah. that was quite useful, you know. But because yeah. it was primetime telly, you could you could watch that without, you know, it wasn't like watching Queer as Folk where you had to stay up late and watch it with the volume turned down in case anyone knew you were watching the gay mm. stuff. You could watch Casualty, and you know, you were you weren't obviously watching it because you had the gay character in it. Mm. So yes. I think it's that interesting, was isn't it? Quite important, yeah. And the BBC has, with shows like that, and for my, in my example, my, sort of not my example, but my memory of that was uh, Colin in EastEnders, mm. played by Mike, Michael Cashman, who uh, was just, yeah, like, like everything you were saying about this guy in Casualty. He was not the stereotypical Michael Inman, loud, exuberant, flamboyant, being honest, comedy character. That's how the, we were, they were presented. Well, that's it. That's, it was almost, that, yeah, you, you, it was almost on screen in theatre that, you know, they were acceptable because they made you laugh. Yes. Rather than yes. being fully rounded human beings. And that was what was quite nice about the Sam character in Casualty was, you know, he had a, he had a job, you know, he had a life. Yeah. He wasn't just there as comic relief. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, I think, took the pressure off me to behave in a particular way. They were so important, those sort of, mm. they come across as, quite humdrum by the by characters colin in eastenders is a very boring character that's the point oh but you've met me i'm a very boring gay <laughs> so, you know we're out there we're <laughs> no, the, well this is the point though that it was a choice of the writers of eastenders to make a character who was gay but but ultimately quite dull mm. because it needed it was there was a responsibility to show people that's what the, 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 that that is the thing that is a the type of gay person yeah god there there was a period where you know it felt like every gay person you saw on tv was contracting aids or yeah god just sort of went oh god is that i mean genuinely sort of thought oh is this a world i'm walking into yeah so the late 90s the terror of hiv and aids was still very much there it was there for me as a straight guy going off to university so how did how, how was that for you at that point this is the thing at school everyone sort of treated being gay like you know you had a disease because that's what the media had sort of made homosexuality mm. become. Even in, you know, 
sex education classes. Oh, God, it would be so awkward because teachers would take me aside at the end and go, well, look, I know this doesn't apply to you, but just imagine that everything we've talked about, you apply to being with a man. And, you know, they were clearly trying their best to acknowledge something needed addressing specific to the homosexual experience, but couldn't find the way, Mm. you know, they didn't have the language yet. They, you know, it was still section 28 where... You know, they were trying their best, but yeah. actually it just became quite awkward. But yeah, it, it was, there was still that stigma attached to being gay. It's just so... It's just... I mean, I was, I was when I came out, the age of consent was still 18 for gay men when it was, you know, 16 right. for everybody else. Which again yeah. makes you feel very different. And you're sort of going, okay, there's clearly something wrong with, yeah. with me. Um, this is what I mean about the and I do want a better phrase, but about the microaggressions that sit across society, this web, this this invisible net that has got you in everything, all these mm. tiny little things, all the signs, every signal you read as a, as, a, as a, you know, vulnerable sponge absorbing society when you're just trying to work out your own personal makeup, everything out in society is saying wrong, no. Mm. It's either saying that's wrong or it's silence. No, I, I remember my, my first proper gay experience was I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it was um, <laughs> it was it was. Well, that's what this podcast was for. I'm so for sorry, sake, but it was it was. I, I met someone on Gaydar, yeah, um, and they were a medical student at Birmingham University, and by this point I was 18, and you know we had a few messages. We phoned each other up on the landline because we didn't have mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, never have you rushed to get a phone faster. Oh. But yeah, I, uh, and he was sort of. Even though, you know, age of consent and everything like that, he was sort of going, oh, God, please don't tell anyone I'm, I'm you know, meeting with an 18-year-old or it could end my career. And you go, he he was, what, 20, 21? He means that as well. That's not just no, levity. No, no, he, he, was, he, was, he was genuinely concerned that it would look like he was cradle snatching or something. Yeah, and that, that was a bit weird. So even your first experience has got just an edge to it, an edge to it of, edge to it of this, this is wrong, this is wrong. Yeah, we never messaged each other again. I mean, he was a doctor, so you you only felt a little prick, I suppose. That is... It was. Do we leave that bit in? I don't know. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, that, I'm really hoping you're going to cut around all of the things where I say completely inappropriate <laughs> sentences, Scott, just to protect my very precious reputation. Um, but yeah, he was genuinely afraid that even though there was only a three-year age gap and we were both legal, that it would somehow impact on his career in a negative way as a doctor, which is yeah. mad. Mad. I mean, imagine if that was a man sleeping with an 18-year-old girl, 21-year-old boy sleeping with an 18-year-old girl. He'd be lauded, celebrated, mm. advanced an extra year in his medical career. Oh, yes. But he would, wouldn't he? This is the thing. It's odd. Th- There's a much bigger conversation about how, you know, boys are raised at school to almost, I don't want to say sexualise women, but th- there, there is a certainly where I was, and it wasn't all boys' school, but there was a lot of almost competitive talk about, you know, getting girlfriends and everything like that. Maybe that's the same across mm. the board. I don't know. But Locker um, room talk, mate. Locker room talk. Yeah. And I I don't know if that's particularly healthy. But of course I never I never had that because no one was really going to listen to me go, Oh, have you seen the Argos catalogue this season? Oh <laughs> So when did you find yourself feeling like you had a safe space a sense of community some friends who were like you and you started to feel like you were at home in the world and you felt happy in your own skin oh it was university Mm. you know because i i at school you're sort of forced to be with the people you you're with and you know i was with a lot of lovely people but as i say because i was from a not well-off background um but surrounded by people who could afford to be at the school i we didn't have anything in common and i I couldn't really spend time with them because I just couldn't afford to. Mm. But at university, I, you know, I was surrounded by like-minded people because we were on the same course and they were good people. And also, I went to Birmingham University and there was an LGB association, as it was then, because, mm. yes. uh, you know, uh, gender didn't really come into it. It was all focused on sexuality. And it, it, it was so funny. There was just basically a little room at the top of the student union, right at the top in the sort of rafters. So you'd have to go up all the stairs, basically out of the way, and you'd walk in and there was basically a bucket of lube and condoms and dental dams just by the door. 
What's a um, dental dam? It's basically almost like a sheet of latex. Oh, yes, I saw that. I remember seeing those. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. But basically, it was sort of, you know, a, a provision for people to practice safe sex. So you get a lot mm. of people just popping their head around the door, grabbing a handful and then buggering off. Um, mm. But you'd also get a lot of people who just hang out there between lectures. And that was that was literally a safe space. And actually, I ended up getting quite involved in, in that. I, I ended up on their committee. Yes. And it went from LGB to LGBT while mm. I was there, just, yeah. just opening it up. I mean, this was about 2004, 2005. Yeah. So we were just starting to see that introduced into the conversation yeah. but uh yeah just just the people i met there and also the people on my course and then then i started doing amateur dramatic stuff as well so met a few people on that and it yeah it just started feeling like i could be myself and mm. people wouldn't judge me and people liked me for who i was rather than me pretending to be someone else so at um, this point the the overcamp thing that you went through that that phase is gone oh that that had sort of died out during my a levels okay right right right, Um, right, right, right. but university was definitely a chance to just shake the etcher sketch and Mm. you know start afresh but joining the committee as well i mean trust you to find some you know an opportunity to get some good admin out of out of sexuality yeah why not if i can do paperwork yeah right right but but in in a serious note did you find yourself thinking i want to get involved in in helping and campaigning and being part of this community and not just a recipient of help, but I want to, I want to proactively do things to help other people. Um, I, I, yeah, I think I did. I mean, I think I wanted to, when I joined, you know, you'd be there during Freshers' Week and it would all be geared towards pub crawls and, and clubbing and stuff like that. And I'd sort of be the one going, yeah, this is lovely, but you know, not everyone's up for this. Maybe we could do some pool nights or, you know, yeah. book groups or stuff like that. So it was just sort of recognising that not everyone in the community did want to just go out and get smashed and shag around. And that's a generalisation, but actually no, no, university no, but it sort of was. Um, but that's interesting is that the idea it sounds like when you talk about the bucket you know, the, the bucket of uh, lube and, and condoms and things like that by the door, there's this thing where, well, there's the LGB, what would it have been then? The LGB? It was the LGB it was Association, yeah, yeah. It was called the society when I was at univers- university, it was called Lesbigay. That was there. Oh. That was it, wasn't it? Lesbigay. Um, and As in Let's Be. Let's be gay, yeah, let's be gay. Uh, and it seems like, well, that society, as it was, you know, you join all societies when you join university, that was synonymous with uh, safe sex. That's basically what it's for. This society mm. isn't actually about sexuality, it's about fucking. It's not like I joined, you know, uh, what did I join? The drama society as soon as I got to university. It's not like we sat down for our first meeting and they went, right, so fucking. Uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Why is that the top? Why has that been historically the top of the list? But that, it yeah, to it's... I think, again, though, it's people coming to university. And at that point, as I say, we didn't have the internet or anything like that. A lot of people didn't really understand necessarily what safe gay sex entailed. Mm. So, you know, as you say, there'd be people staring at a dental dam going, what's this for? And you'd sort of explain it and they'd go, oh, God, that never would have occurred to me. Yeah. But as I say, just in the years I was there, it went from LGB to LGBT. So it became... It slowly stopped becoming just about sex and sexuality, but more yeah. about the community and the politics. Hilarious story. You'll love this as well from my university days. I fell head over heels with someone from my amateur dramatics group. Excellent. As you do. And they they were, they were very, very sweet. Um, and we got on like a house on fire, you know, uh, still friends to this day. But... He wouldn't, he, he didn't want to pursue anything because he was saving himself for his favourite musical theatre star, John Barrowman. <gasps> Which I'm, I'm sure you will appreciate the irony of this given how I have ended up working with John so much <laughs> in my professional life in recent years. Have you told John about this? I have told John about this. That basically, he was blocking me about a decade before we ever started working together. <laughs> But oh uh, Sean must love that. Yeah, just absolutely. <laughs> oh my god, I've been in control of your life for years, Scotty. <laughs> oh, oh god. Oh, god. I mean, looking back, there was so much weird sort of adolescent young male turmoil, and mm. oh, the drama of relationships was hilarious. 
Yeah, of course, of course. So much fun. So much fun. I miss all that. Now we're all boring and middle-aged. Mm. So where do you... Now, now you are sitting in boring middle-aged land. I mean, you're not really because you're still young. Um, but now you are approaching boring middle age, which for me is the best bit. I'm thrilled to be boring. Oh, I like... I, I, oh, do you know, I love a sit-down wee... Oh, I love a sit-down where you can't go wrong. You can't yeah, go wrong. literally can't go wrong. Well, exactly. That's why. That's why my wife has been encouraging me to do them for years. So so now you sit there and we, we can now sort of, you know, we can be the old guys on the bench mm. looking, at all those, looking at all those young crazy things dancing in the park. What advice and what uh, words of wisdom do you feel you would give off, maybe to yourself watching yourself walk into that, that club in Birmingham back in the day or to... People who are beginning that journey themselves now in the newer, you know, landscape where the conversation has moved on so much in the last 20 years, brilliantly in in so many ways. Do you know, I think the thing I take away now is just letting stuff happen, just relaxing a lot more. Mm. I was going to share the story of my first relationship, which uh, was basically a bit EastEnders. Oh, yeah. Did someone die at Christmas? No, not quite. Okay. God. It was it was it was my coming up to my twenty first birthday and I had a really, really good mate um who was straight and I adored and um I sort of confessed to him that I was struggling being friends because I felt a little bit more. And he was mm. he was so good with that information and went, Do you know what? It's cool. Don't worry about it. And that made me relax a lot more. But then we were all going away, a group of us, for my twenty first, and then a few days before he said do you know what? I think I might feel the same way. And we went, don't worry, we'll talk about it when we're away. And uh, we basically went to a desolate Norfolk beach. Oh my God, this is like the start of Peter's Friends. Oh my God. But it was November. So it was a sort of bleak, wintry beach. And uh, it was hilarious, actually, because we it, there were four of us, uh, me and a mate of mine. We were the two gayers. And we were with two ostensibly straight people who then both turned out to be gay as well. Wow. But... Um, me and my, my then-to-become-boyfriend had, had a chat the one night, had a bit of a kiss, which was lovely, and then the next day, we're going for a long walk along the beach, and we said to the others, we're just going to go for a wander, we'll be back in about 20 minutes or so, and we just walked down the beach, and, uh, you know, chatting really nicely, and then let's just had a bit of snoggage, all very nice. Mm-hmm. On the cliffs directly above us, our friends just happened to take a walk as well and see us, and <sighs> my my gay friend at that point was also shamelessly in love unrequited <laughs> with my straight friend oh my god and he was the one driving us everywhere and this is a love quadrangle i love it oh it was it was awful it was the most awkward <laughs> awkward i say we laugh about it now i laugh about it all the others give me a frosty stare and <laughs> like to pretend it never ever happened but i find it too funny to not talk about but it's that thing of i think because of how we were discovered in a way we mm. then felt obliged to leap into something and, and make it work and you know there, there was a lot of affection and, and love in that friendship and indeed the, the subsequent relationship but I think the pressure of having to justify the fallout from that weekend made yeah. it quite tempestuous at points We've thrown a hand grenade into this group, so now we have to yeah. power on through. Yeah. Uh, and I think there are a lot of situations a bit like that, maybe not quite as uh, soap opera, mm. but where people mm. feel they you know, they might say something to someone or, or something, and then they feel compelled to make something work, even if they're not feeling it. And yeah. as I say, that relationship was lovely. Probably tried to make it last longer than it should have, because... Yeah. It was the first relationship as well, and you just you, you know, first relationships you think are never going to end. Do you do you feel that a um, when you have a successful relation, long relationship, mm. do you feel how can I phrase this without being offensive? <laughs> let's have a listen. Let's have a little go at this. Uh, because of the prevailing stereotype that gay people, gay men, have short relationships, are uh, having sex with lots and lots of people because mm. of this stereotype. Is it therefore more precious when you are proving to the world that you are a, you are monogamous? That's what you want to do. Those are your choices. Therefore, to give up on that relationship feels uh, somehow like you're giving up on that image of yourself. Is that have I been offensive at any point? I, I, I mean, I'm not offended. Um, okay, All right, I, don't, I'll take that. I don't think so either because I've always been quite private. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. Everyone in my office was so bored of the drama of 
yeah. my relationship at that point. But I, I don't. I never felt like I was representing gay men. No, in that sense. But it's that thing of you know, much much later because after that, I was single pretty much throughout my twenties. Wow. And I went on a few dates, and I, I sort of by that point didn't feel the pressure. So it's like I met uh, my oh my old housemate was the best person to live with, and I met him sort of by uh, going on a date. And it was that thing of just clicking with someone, but not in a romantic sense. Yeah. And just going, do you know what? We really like each other's company. And that was yeah, lovely. Chemistry doesn't have to be romantic. Well, that's it. And I think, again, a lot of people assume that if two gay men meet or get along, oh, they must be fucking. And you go, yeah, oh, God, yeah. no, really. We're, we're complex human beings as well. But, you know, it's that thing as well with uh, my other half. There was never any pressure there when... I met him about seven years ago because actually we had mutual friends and just happened to cross paths on Twitter and suggest we go for a coffee. And as far as I knew, he was straight. He thought I was straight. So it was just two people meeting for coffee, uh, getting on really well, uh, clicking. And yeah, the rest is history, really. Um, um, listen, Scott, I've got, I've got to go because I've got to go and get the children from oh, school. Yes. Um, my question to you before we, before we finish this. First of all, thank you so much for appearing on your own podcast. It's really good of you. Oh, well, thank you for <laughs> asking me once I forced you into it. <laughs> I, hope, I, hope I've, I hope I've done you justice. I hope I've done you justice. I've, I really enjoyed this. Um, what, what I want to know is, from Queer to Eternity Series 2, that is going to happen, um, were, who do you want to get on it, please? Oh, I mean, I, I don't want to say, because I, I do actually have a list. I do have a list oh, of good. people. And, of course you, know, you do. Admin, always the admin, I, yeah, I've on the committee. Mm-hmm. The spreadsheet. I, I just quite like the mix of people we've had in Series 1. Yes. And yes. Uh, I think we might even have a special from the London Podcast Festival, maybe. Yes. We need to discuss true. that. That's, that's happening. That is happening. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, who knows? But uh, All right, good. You've, you've swerved that answer. Well done. There you right. go. Fine. <laughs> Well, you've got to get uh, the kids, so, you know. I do. I have to go and get the bloody children. Um, Scott, thank you for uh, thank you for flipping the roles on From Career to Eternity. I would only do it with you, Tom. Thank you. Good. I knew you would. Bless you. Massive thanks to Tom for agreeing to turn the tables on me for this episode and for introducing the podcast into the Great Big Owl family. As this is our last episode for a while, I'd like to thank all our contributors for this first series. Nathaniel Curtis, Leander Natty-Lewis-Nyao, Jamie Windust, Hannah Raymond Cox, Misha Butler, Emily Garside, Daniel Brocklebank, Samantha Bayard, Paul Clayton, Alexandra Dessar and Lou Caulfield, Samuel Barnett and Thea Cochran. If you've heard any names you've missed out on, go and investigate now. If you've heard them all, leave us a rating or review wherever you hear your podcasts. You're probably already following us on social media, but if not, we're at queer to eternity on Twitter and Instagram. And as Tom said, we will be back with a special episode later in the year and hopefully very more soon. Until then, stay safe, stay happy, and thanks again for listening. Great Big Owl dot com. subscribe to our podcast you know it's all about how to get the most out of your partner and we're partners so we know all about it it's good get it wherever you want to get it when you go and get it from your podcast place richard and greta you know you know